This is Eve Lazarus, and you're listening to Cold Case Canada, the murder of Brenda Young at the Good Earth Store. Cold Case Canada is an independently produced true crime podcast hosted by Eve Lazarus, a reporter and author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. This episode is brought to you by our sponsor, Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours. In the fall of 1971, Bruce and Brenda Young rented out their North Vancouver house, packed their four kids and some belongings into a Volkswagen bus and headed south. Bruce, a 44-year-old former reporter with the Vancouver Sun, turned freelance writer, could work anywhere and he wanted to write a book. Brenda, also a writer, would look after the family. The plan was to head to Mexico, learn some Spanish, gain an understanding of the culture and source some local handicrafts with the idea of opening a small shop on their return to Canada. The youngs headed to the village of San Juan Cosala on the shores of Lake Chapala and rented a small house for one month. It had a couple of rooms and a courtyard, and they lived among the locals. When I was researching this story from my book Cold Case Vancouver in 2015, I talked to Brenda's oldest son, Tom. Tom was 11 when the trip to Mexico took place. He told me it was the best memory of his childhood. Tom said he remembered his father driving about 20 of the local kids around in the family's old VW. The rent from the Young's house financed most of their trip, but money was still tight and mostly the family stayed in a tent trailer that they towed along for that purpose. Where Bruce was loud and social, Brenda was a stabiliser in the family. Tom says his mother was an incredibly caring person. She wanted to make everybody's life better, including, of course, her kids. The family returned to North Vancouver the following year, bringing with them an assortment of clothing, crafts and trinkets from Mexico and Guatemala. Brenda took over a leather goods store from its financially struggling owners and she called it The Good Earth. The store was in the 200 block of Lonsdale Avenue, just up from what's now Lonsdale Quay and where we catch the sea bus. The sea bus, which carries passengers across the Barad Inlet between North Vancouver and downtown Vancouver, wouldn't start operating until 1977. Brenda's store sold pottery, necklaces, jewellery, leather accessories, woven fabrics, handwoven tapestries and traditional Mayan clothing that the youngs picked up on their buying trips. Tom worked in the store occasionally, mostly after school and on weekends, and Bruce helped out from time to time. But it was Brenda who had the head for business. And while the store was a family concern, their company was called Brenda Imports. By 1976, the small Cedar Shake shop had a regular customer base and Brenda had turned the Good Earth into a thriving business. She was an attractive, petite woman with long black curly hair, rosy cheeks and she was always smiling. She liked to dress in the clothes that she sourced from Guatemala and Mexico, long flowing denim skirts that she wore with big dangling earrings. On the morning of January 7, 1976, Brenda opened the store an hour later than usual. 
The business was doing well enough that she and Bruce had decided to buy a second car for Brenda and they'd met with a bank manager to take out a loan. Bruce dropped his wife off at the store where a neighbour was waiting for her with a bag of sticky buns. The rest of the morning was uneventful. Brenda talked to a few regulars and served several customers. Bruce tried to phone her just after 2pm, but there was no answer. He tried to phone again a little later, and he became increasingly worried when he phoned for a third time and got no reply. He had a bad feeling, he said later, and he phoned their friend Harry O'Day, who operated the bookstore right next door. He asked Harry if he would check on his wife. Harry O'Day was having a quiet day in the bookstore. There was only one customer when Bruce phoned, and it was his friend Carl Payne, a folk singer who lived in East Vancouver, and had dropped by to give him a late Christmas present. Harry tried the front door of Brenda's store and found it locked, but the lights were still on. He reported back to Bruce. Bruce asked him to break in through the bookstore and said he would stay on the phone. Harry and Carl went to the back of the store where there was some thin plywood covering a hole and separating the two stores. They pried open enough of the panelling to gain access to a changing room. Carl opened the curtain and was the first to see Brenda. It was obvious that she was dead and he told his friend not to go in. They went back to the bookstore and broke the horrible news to Bruce and then they phoned police. Brenda had been stabbed, strangled and left at the back of his store. Harry hadn't heard a thing. He hadn't noticed any customers coming or going from Brenda's boutique that morning. Brenda was well known and much loved in North Vancouver, especially in Deep Cove in the adjoining Dollarton area where she lived. She had written a weekly column for the North Shore Citizen for several years, covering day-to-day activities of importance to the tight-knit community. Neighbours described her as a beautiful person, warm, generous and kind. I've put up a post about Brenda on my Facebook Cold Case Canada page on the anniversary of her death for the last few years. And I'm surprised how many people remembered her and how fondly they remembered her and her store, The Good Earth, even after 45 years. I talked to Brenda and Bruce's niece, Alison, who was 15 and living in Victoria when her aunt was murdered. There were so many people at that funeral. She was really a loved woman. Everybody loved her. I mean, there was nothing to not like about her. I remember spending a lot of time when we were kids going over and visiting for weekends. I loved going to the house. Their house was a big house and there was always so much excitement and so much activity. And it was just a really cool place to go. I remember coming over to visit my cousins and and then we would go to Stanley Park and go to the concerts in the park. I think they were called Beams. And Auntie Brenda was just a really happy, really fun lady. And, and Auntie Brenda always made me feel so special. She was such a kind, loving, wonderful woman. Like, why would anybody do that to her? The Brenda Young murder was the last case Staff Sergeant Fred Bodnarak worked on before his retirement in July 1976. Bodnarak had 26 years on the job and he had dual roles. He was in charge of major crimes detail for North Vancouver and he led the original unsolved homicide section, which travelled province-wide. Bodnarak was the first RCMP officer at Brenda's murder scene and he remembers the case clearly four decades later. Bodnarak said he found Brenda lying face down in a pool of blood. She was gagged with cloth but untied 
and there were no signs of a struggle. Can you walk through so, it? Before we walk in, of course, we see her body there and uh, blood everywhere. Uh, quick glance showed she was slashed and stabbed, uh, I think, in the neck, and then pretty wide slash around her throat. Did it feel like a hit? At first it did, yeah. At first it just seemed so rapid, quick, and, and kind of professional. Like, to take a chance like that. Brenda had four cuts across the front of her neck, but the blood loss from the lacerations wasn't a principal cause of death. Rather, an autopsy revealed that death was due to strangulation. The marks on her neck, as well as other signs, a rash on her face and around her eyelids, indicated strangulation probably by a cord or a wire. Because Brenda had been gagged but not tied up, Bodnarak thought that either there were two people involved or the murderer had threatened her with a knife and told her she'd be okay as long as she didn't make any noise. Bodnarak said although she wasn't sexually assaulted, he didn't rule that out as a motive for her murder. Police searched through the store looking for the murder weapon. They discovered that Brenda had been making out an invoice for a customer just before she died. At the time, Bodnarak thought this could have been her killer. A 25-year-old woman contacted police and said that she and her boyfriend were in the Good Earth shortly after one o'clock on the day of the murder. She was a regular in a store, knew Brenda, and Brenda said hello to them, but she was busy serving a man who was already browsing. Brenda didn't seem to know the man, and he didn't really seem interested in anything in the store. The young woman got weird vibes from him. She remembers telling her boyfriend after they left the Good Earth that he seemed a bit strange. While she never saw the man's face, she was able to tell police that he was over six feet tall, in good physical condition, and aged between 30 and 35. She also noticed that he was clean-shaven, with medium brown collar-length hair, and well-dressed in brown pants and a hip-length light brown leather jacket. When another witness came forward and told police that she'd tried to enter the store and found it locked, they narrowed Brenda's time of death to between 1.35 and 2.15pm. Bodnarak thinks the man in the brown leather jacket was Brenda's killer. The timing was right. Being a stranger to the area, he wouldn't have worried too much about being recognised. And he knew how to get away without being seen. He was also composed enough to lock the door to the store and to take with him the knife and the cord or wire that was used to strangle Brenda. No one saw a blood-soaked man fleeing the crime scene and no one reported a disturbed individual around the time of her death. Bodnarak believes this was likely because the murder escaped through the shabby back lanes. That strip of Lower Lonsdale was frequented by young transients, but except for the nearby Olympic Hotel, which had degenerated into a pretty sleazy beer parlour, it was usually a quiet area. The RCMP put 12 investigators onto the case. They checked and eliminated more than 40 people. Investigators searched the entire area of Lower Lonsdale with tracker dogs, but the killer hadn't left clothes or a murder weapon behind, and the dogs couldn't pick up a scent. Bodnarak thought he'd finally got a break when they were checking dry cleaners in the area. I got excited because I started checking laundries, went out there, and we found one just the same time that was in for cleaning. We thought, holy God, was he dumb enough to do that? 
turned out he wasn't. If he'd have left the jacket, man, we'd have had him because we could have tracked him and he was smart enough. And no knife left at the scene either that I remember. No, they never found anything. No, no. Police ruled out robbery as a motive. No money was missing from the cash drawer. It wasn't that sort of store that you would target for a robbery. Brenda's murder was so rapid and risky that it smacked of professionalism. Bodnarak thought that with the Young's connection to Mexico and Central America, the murder could have been part of a drug connection gone wrong. For a while, she was running back and forth to Mexico, and I thought she had a drug connection. She was importing clothes, and uh, we thought maybe she peed somebody off by shortchanging the drug thing. We thought, you know, she used to buy pretty outlandish clothes with a lot of seams in them and so on. Mm. We seized a whole bunch of those clothes. Had the ident man do that too, but gosh, it, it seemed like the guy just timed it right. There was nobody there. It was right in daylight and probably about two in the afternoon. While a professional hitman or a serial killer seems absurd in sleepy North Vancouver, Vancouver was known as the drug capital of Canada a title that the city had worn since Danny Brent's murder in 1954. Most of the professional hits were by gun or club, and disposal was usually by dumping the body in the bush. Bodnarak says that they made international inquiries to see if there was a connection there that the Brenda may have fallen out with. But even if they were doing something illegal, and there is absolutely no evidence to suggest that they were, the volume of business was too small to warrant a hitman. Brenda was a vibrant and attractive woman, and while there was no evidence that she was seeing anyone outside her marriage, police looked at the possibility of a rejected would-be lover. Nothing turned up. When inquiries also failed to turn up a robbery, drug connection or spurned lover, investigators turned their attention on Bruce Young. Bruce agreed to a polygraph and passed, and police tapped his phone. There was nothing to connect him to his wife's murder. Bodnarak interviewed him and didn't believe he'd be capable of committing an act of such violence. Did you ever suspect the husband? Oh, yes. The husband was the first suspect, really. Once you got to know him, I doubt if he ever had the gall to do that. But I'll tell you one thing, he had her murdered, he'd have to hire someone. And we did some real checking. Frustrated and with no leads, police brought in a clairvoyant who was visiting from England to help them solve the murder. Bodnarak says while working with a clairvoyant wasn't common, it wasn't unheard of either. You just never know where fate will give you a break. You just don't know. In this case, though, the clairvoyant was unable to give police any new leads. Early in 2015, Corporal Gord Reed of the North Vancouver RCMP thought he'd finally had a break in the case via lead through Viclas. Uh, Viclas stands for Violent Crime Linkage Analyst System. It's a kind of supercomputer that helps investigators link major crimes across various jurisdictions. Reed told me that Viclas had turned up a reasonable suspect who was serving a sentence for murder in another province. But before he could book a plane ticket and go and interview the suspect, the man died in jail. Reed says there was no DNA or blood evidence from the 1976 crime scene to check against the suspects. 
the monumental scandals tour by Forbidden Vancouver Walking Tours digs into the dirty foundations of the city's most iconic heritage buildings. There's a sensational murder behind the old Vancouver courthouse, backroom deals at the Hotel Vancouver, salacious dances at the old Orpheum Theatre, and the chief of police who liked his gambling bribes delivered in paper bags. This walking tour includes a private look inside the Marine Building, an Art Deco masterpiece built by a rum runner during American Prohibition. Book tickets at ForbiddenVancouver.com and save 15% off your booking by using the code COLDCASE. Brenda's murder devastated her family. The 38-year-old left behind four children, Heather, Tom, Jennifer and 10-year-old Sheila. Bruce fell apart. He drank heavily. He was estranged from his Scottish parents who lived in Victoria, the capital of British Columbia, as well as his brother Michael, a leading lawyer who at the time of Brenda's murder was the mayor of Victoria. The problem for the kids was that Bruce refused all offers of help and he clearly needed it. Bruce may have decided to keep the store, but he was running it into the ground. They were losing about $300 a month. Tom dropped out in the middle of grade 12 to take over the business. His father returned to Mexico to finish his book. In 1979, Bruce self-published a book called Hotel California. It's a dense political book that looks at how North America's never-ending need for oil exploited the Mexicans. He then presumably tried to make it more attractive to publishers by turning it into a bit of a memoir, which includes his family's travels in Mexico and South America and his wife's own murder. I found a second-hand copy when I was researching the chapter for Cold Case Vancouver, and I reread it again just before interviewing Alison, Bruce and Brenda's niece, for this podcast. Alison thinks that something Bruce wrote in his book may have been behind Brenda's murder. This is a passage from the book read by Mark Dunn. There was evidence that Brenda put up a brave struggle against her executioner, but apart from that, few, if any, clues were unearthed. Certainly nothing was stolen. Even the money in the cash drawer was intact. The main investigatory response by the Royal Canadian Mounted Police was aimed at determining whether I had some hand in the murder, or alternatively, whether Brenda was involved in some illegal activity. The police went over Brenda's store with a fine-toothed comb. They never said what they were looking for, but tore into such things as sealed packages of incense from Nepal. The RCMP search was unproductive, as was the $28,000 reward money put up for information leading to the arrest of Brenda's killer. In the weeks immediately following the murder, I was anxious to see the killer tracked down today and probably reconciled to letting the matter rest unsolved. Besides, I now have reason to believe that the whole tragedy came about because of a mistaken identity. This was the second time I'd heard the theory that Brenda was killed by a hitman because of a mistake in identity. After my book came out, I was talking to a retired West Vancouver police officer who told me that the RCMP felt that there was a strong likelihood that this was true. I can't tell you the names of the corrupt RCMP officer or the police informant whose evidence put him in jail because it was never linked to Brenda's murder and the alleged hitman was never found. I can tell you, though, that I checked all of this out with newspaper reports of the day, and it makes a lot of sense to me. 
The North Vancouver-based RCMP drug squad sergeant was caught stealing 50 pounds of hashish with a street value of around $40,000. That's equivalent to about $190,000 today. Stole this from the evidence locker from the RCMP offices at 33rd and Heather Street. He did this because he wanted to retire and start a rental business and thought this would be an easy way to get some startup funds. Unfortunately for him, he picked the wrong person to distribute the drugs. The woman was a police informant, and because of her evidence, the former sergeant received a six-year jail sentence. The belief was that he contracted a hitman from jail to kill the police informant and exact his revenge. The RCMP officer did go to jail, and the police informant's name was right in all the newspaper stories. After I read through the newspaper reports of his trial, I went down to the North Vancouver Museum and Archives to look through the city directories. I was stunned to find that the police informant owned a second-hand furniture store directly across the street from the Good Earth in 1976. Both women were around the same age. Brenda was 38. The informant was 42. The street number of the Good Earth was 238, and the street number of the police informant's furniture store was number 231. According to the retired police officer I spoke to, the killer got the store numbers mixed up. This theory makes more sense to me than anything else I've heard. Brenda had no enemies that anyone could think of. She was loved in her community and by all the other store owners and street people. The attack happened in the middle of the day. It wasn't a sexual assault or a robbery. And whoever killed her locked the door so no one could walk in. Not something a psychotic killer would likely think of. After murdering Brenda, the killer escaped through the back alleys and even though it was the middle of the day and he must have been covered in blood, no one saw him. A large reward was offered for information leading to an arrest, but no one came forward. Fred Bodnarak, the original RCMP investigator, thought it looked like a hit, but couldn't find any reason why Brenda would be the target of one. What was really disturbing to me was how people reacted to the murder. Tom, Brenda's son, who took over the store at age 16, told me that not only was it a terrible thing to lose his mother, but people would come into the store and rudely ask him if the family was still selling drugs. Tom ran the Good Earth at the Lonsdale Street location until the early 1990s. When I talked to him in 2015, he was still in the retail clothing business and doing really well. The Lonsdale Street store survived until 2013, when it and other surrounding retail stores were replaced by a five-storey mixed-use development called the Versatile Building. Bruce remarried and had a son. He died from lung cancer at age 64. Brenda Young was one of North Vancouver's 17 unsolved cases that date back to 1964. After 2003, new investigations were transferred to IHIT, the RCMP's Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. If you're enjoying Cold Case Canada, why not buy Eve a coffee? Go to evelazarus.com. Thanks so much to everyone for listening. For more information, please see my website, evelazarus.com. I'm Eve Lazarus, and I'm a reporter and an author based in Vancouver, British Columbia. I host and produce Blood, Sweat and Fear, the story of Inspector Vance. Vance wasn't a police officer, as his title suggests. 
He was the first forensic scientist to work for a police department in Canada and certainly the first to carry a badge and a gun. Vance was so good that he was known as the Sherlock Holmes of Canada and his forensic skills were so advanced that in 1934 there were seven attempts on his life by criminals afraid to go up against him in court. Each episode follows a different major crime that Vance helped to solve. You can find Blood, Sweat and Fear on Apple, Podbean or your favourite podcatcher.